Paula Mejia was a junior at George Washington University when she walked into her first creative writing class with professor and author H.G. H. Carrillo. It was one of those classes that students buzzed about. When I heard that there was this professor who had this really distinct way of teaching creative writing and that he was going to kick your ass a little bit and that you become a better writer, I said, sign me up. For the eight years Carrillo taught creative writing and Latin American literature at George Washington, he influenced countless students. He was demanding with his writing exercises, pushing students to understand what they were trying to capture on the page and why. He earned a reputation for making writing accessible. I mean, have you seen Dead Poet Society? People described him as like Robin Williams' character. Like he would get up on the desk, like to prove a point because it felt relevant to the text. And every single day before class, he expected you as a class to put the desks in a circle. And he, he would be sitting in a desk in the center of the circle so that we could all look at each other and look at him while we were having this lesson. Professor Carrillo was charismatic. He was engaging. He pushed his students to read a lot and to also interrogate the text that they read. Carrillo's assignments were rigorous, and he held his students to high standards. The thing that really stood out to me the most is that he really had no patience or tolerance for mediocrity. Even from the first class, I remember, like, this is not something that you are going to do halfway. But he had a reason to push his students. He believed in them. He encouraged them. He was invested in their work and their lives. He was one of those cool professors who would just make you feel seen and heard. I would go by his office hours and people would be in there like shooting the shit for hours. And he would have people just drop by just for social visits. And years later, people were still doing that. He was very friendly. The English department was very impressed with him. And the students adored him. This is Lisa Page. She's the director of creative writing at George Washington University. She says from Carrillo's first day on the job, he was everywhere, chatting with students, arguing literature with professors, regaling faculty with stories about his family's journey from Cuba. I was very intrigued that he was from Cuba originally. That was what he said, and that he had migrated to the States with his family, but still had a lot of family in Cuba, that his father was a surgeon, his mother was a dean at a college in Michigan, and he had grown up in Ann Arbor. Professor Carrillo's experience as a Cuban-American wasn't just something he talked about with his colleagues and students. It was a huge part of his writing, in English and Spanish. And for many students, that was liberating. It was something that earned him loyalty from his students even years after they graduated. Paula, now the arts editor at the L.A. Times, still kept up with his work. Until one day in the spring of 2020, when tragedy struck. Professor Carrillo had passed away due to complications related to COVID-19. He was also coping with cancer. His obituary came out a few weeks later. The Washington Post ran a story first, you know, that he had died of covid He was only 59. He was a novelist and literature instructor, and he was also the chair of the Penn Faulkner Foundation. 
The obituary touched on Carrillo's substantial contributions to the literary world and his writing about Latino identity. And then a few days later, there was a retraction because the writer of the profile had been contacted by Ache's sister, who was from Detroit and who said that Ache was also from Detroit, that his name was not Herman Carrillo, it was Herman Glenn Carroll, and that he had grown up being called Glenn as a child, and that he never lived in Cuba. Carrillo had lied. He was a Black American, born and raised in Detroit, just like his parents. He'd never been Latino, that there were no Latinos in the family, and the retraction ran in the Washington Post. So that was how I found out. All those stories about his family's immigration from Cuba, about his childhood assimilating to American culture, about his life as an Afro-Cuban man, none of it was true. And he wasn't just lying to the academic world. Turns out, his husband and friends had no idea that he wasn't Afro-Cuban. Now, they were left to reckon with the idea that this person, that they loved for being so unapologetically himself, was actually somebody else altogether. And they were left with a question. Why? I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheat, the show where we ask the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? This week, Fictional Lives, how one author applied his fiction writing skills to fabricate the story of his own life. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 2004, at age 30, Herman G. Carrillo published his first novel, Losing My Spanish. And it was well-received, to say the least. What he wrote was very good and experimental and really just unlike anything I've ever read before personally. He took a professorship at George Washington University and later became the chair of the Penn Faulkner Foundation, where he'd oversee programs aimed at expanding and encouraging writers. He started this very important initiative with Penn Faulkner, bringing Latino writers to public schools in D.C. Lisa, who's been with the Penn Faulkner Foundation for over 20 years, saw firsthand the impact that Carrillo, or Ache, as friends and students called him, had on expanding access to the literary world. No one on the board of Penn Faulkner had ever thought to do that, and Ache did. And D.C. has a sizable Latino community, and we were bringing all of these writers to the public schools, but we weren't addressing the Latinos uh, in terms of language, in terms of subject matter, and writers, and Ache put that together. He was always thinking about young and emerging writers, which was in part why he was such a great professor. He was really, I think, one of the first people to sit me down and say, I think 
you have it. Like you have talent. You can go far with this. And that is incredibly meaningful, especially when you're 19, 20. So I seriously doubt that I would be where I am in my career were it not for him and his encouragement. So many people had questions as to why he lived the lie that he did. One of those people was Paula. She was one of many impacted by Carrillo. Looking for answers, she reached out to people who were also grieving and confused. Those conversations ended up contributing to an article she wrote for Rolling Stone. And now, Paula's joined me here to talk more about the life and the lies of her former professor. What was it like when you found out that the identity that he was presenting to his students and to the world was fabricated? So this was in the thick of the pandemic when everything was shut down. I had been in my house for a month and a half. I had not seen the outside world or talked to anyone. And I have this group chat on Facebook with some friends from college and a couple of people in there had taken a class with Aceh and someone told our group chat, like, I don't know if any of you had Professor Carrillo, but I just got word that he died. And I, I, it was a gut punch. A couple of weeks later, the Washington Post story comes out. They essentially have to rewrite the whole story. This is the obituary that was published, the one that Carrillo's family had to correct, the one that Lisa, Carrillo's colleague, also saw. I was shocked, as were my colleagues, as were most people who knew him. His own husband didn't know this story. And I was just stunned for days. I felt betrayed by the whole thing. I just I just felt like I had been hoodwinked. But the funny thing, as I say this to you, is that I knew that Ache exaggerated from time to time. I knew eventually sometimes that he didn't tell the truth. I did not imagine that it was to this capacity, however. Most people were surprised, rightfully so. They were shocked. And of course, they were confused. And with that confusion came another feeling. Curiosity. I didn't feel anger or betrayal or anything like that. I think I instantly went into that mode as a reporter where you just feel like you have to know everything about why this is. I need to find out everything. Like I am just like the fact that he did this in plain sight and nobody knew, not even his widower was astounding to me. She was talking to people who knew him as Herman Carrillo. But to understand why he'd do something like this, she needed to go back to learn about Herman Carroll. And the more she dug into his life, the more details she got on his past, the more perplexing it became. Because she found out that Carrillo had been spinning stories for most of his life. More on that after the break. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, 
and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. So at this point, you're probably wondering, who was actually H.G. Carrillo or Herman Glenn Carroll? Carrillo, or Glenn, as he was called then, was born into a Michigan family in 1960. He and his siblings grew up in a pretty nice neighborhood, Sherwood Forest, which is on the west side of Detroit. And Paula learned a lot more about Carrillo from the folks of his past. When I was reading your piece, I saw that he had been spinning tales from a young age. I mean, so I guess it's appropriate that he became a, a creative writing professor because he was very creative to the extent that he was able to create an entire backstory for himself. Like, what did you learn from from Carrillo's childhood friends? Well, I learned that, yes, he was very creative from a young age. He grew up in Detroit and he went to Cass Tech, which is a a public school in Detroit. And he had friends who I think had similar interests as he did in film and theater and literature. And from the way I understand it, like he was very much a force in his high school community. But there was something Carrillo's friends noticed about him. His high school friends had stories about him spinning some yarns and telling some pretty tall tales, some of which definitely weren't true. Some of his friends had fallen out with him specifically because they felt like the storytelling was really out there and that they felt like he's maybe fabricating things, like I'm not sure if I can trust him. And what we know next is that Carrillo went to Chicago in the 80s. And then, as I understand it, he started to embody this different identity. And that's what I wanted to get to next. Do you have a sense of when he started to create this new identity for himself? And how did it grow to be what it had become? It seems like it started to take force when he was an undergraduate at DePaul in the 90s, which he would have been in his mid-30s. The timeline gets a little murky around here. I spoke with several of his professors at DePaul, and they told me that over time, when he started to perhaps feel more comfortable with what he was studying and the kind of writing that he was doing, he started expressing himself more as a Cuban man. He introduced himself as Herman Carroll, which is his real name, in when he first started at DePaul. But over time, he started telling people, you know, my, my real name is Herman Carrillo. My name was taken from me when I moved. And so he, the way that he talked about it was as though he was reclaiming that identity that had 
been taken away from him and his family when they had become exiled from Cuba. Carrillo then started publishing under his new name. Well, the name we've been using the whole time, H.G. Carrillo. Things might have been different if he had just stopped there. But with his new name came the construction of this new identity. It sounds like he was the kind of professor that wanted students to be able to understand who he was in a way that's relatable. But then that that brings the question, though, like, who was he? Did you know anything about his backstory? Did he ever talk about his heritage? How much of that was a part of who he was as a professor presenting to his students? He would intersperse things in conversations and in between lessons. Like, he said that he was from Cuba, that his family had emigrated in the early 1960s, that he struggled to make sense of his life when he came to the United States. He would tell us that in between different creative writing exercises and the literature we were doing. So it, I, I think it was definitely a big part of, of what he presented to us in the performance, as we later found out. Clearly, he had a significant effect on you as a student. Do you think part of that significant effect that he had on you was related to this identity that he assumed as as a Cuban? I do. Especially when I was 19, 20, I think like a lot of people who are first or second generation, their parents grew up in a different country culturally. Like I grew up in Houston, but my parents didn't let us speak English at home. For Paula, a first-generation Colombian-American, she felt like Professor Carrillo understood something about her. I had never had a writing teacher who I felt maybe had gone through a similar thing or understood where I was coming from. And something that was really striking and meaningful to me is that when I would drop by his office hours, we would talk in mostly Spanglish, but sometimes just in Spanish. And that that was comforting for me, definitely. And so I felt that around him, he made me feel validated in that way and that it was possible to encompass all of it, that I didn't have to necessarily try and be more Colombian in one sense or more Americanized in another and, and try and code switch those identities in a way. One of the reasons I asked that question is because you wrote, to learn from Ache, someone who also seemed caught between two worlds, was to be in the presence of someone who understood what I was trying to say. And in that, can you elaborate a little bit more on this? Like, what, what did Ache seem to recognize about your life and, and what he shared with you? Until that class, I would have never thought that you could put a word in Spanish in an English text and have it be valid. I grew up with these ideas that writing was a really specific way and that there there was a time and a place for English writing and for Spanish writing, but never the twain shall meet, right? But Ache made it okay to say, you know, you you can explore different ways of thinking and of expressing ideas, and that's valid. Do you think it would have been possible for 
you to feel validated in that way if you didn't see him as Cuban? Well, I think he would have been a great encouraging professor either way. I think that the identity and performance aspect was part of the way that he presented himself and himself in the classroom. And I might not have had those conversations with him if he didn't present as Cuban, but I do want to think that his generosity extends beyond that, um, just because he was so invested in his students succeeding. I think that transcends everything. Do you think what he did can be justified or said to be no different than how some people claim their identity through mythical stories and religious beliefs? Oh, what a question. (laughs) I really... I've wrestled with this for a long time, and I still don't have a clear answer, I think. My brother and I grew up in the United States, but my parents immigrated. And I think even with that perspective, there was a sense that in the United States, you could reinvent yourself or you could do something different where your past didn't necessarily determine who you could be. There is a line between reinvention and appropriating an identity. And it's hard to know if he if this started out as trying this out here and there and then eventually he full-blown embodied this identity or if that was something that he sought out to do specifically. I have no way of knowing. In the literary world, there's a long-standing tradition where authors would write underneath pseudonyms or, you know, taking on pen names. Do you think Ache's deception is in any way in line with these, or do you think it's different? I think that he was perhaps intrigued by that idea, but I think that very few people take on the pseudonym and then take on the persona as well. I I think that it's one thing to change your name for whatever reason, but change your name essentially make your name a Spanish name and then embody that experience as though it's something that you lived is quite a different thing. I know that when I spoke with people who knew him in graduate school, around the time when there were there were more instances of people who had done ethnic impersonations or appropriations in literature, they told me that they had really interesting conversations with Ache about it. And that Ache seemed to be really frustrated that there was a more of an emphasis placed on people's stories and their identity rather than the work itself. After Carrillo started working under his new name, he fell out of contact with his family. He kept his professional and personal life separate. And that's probably what allowed him to maintain this new identity. Then you add in Carrillo's thoroughness, his attention to detail, the way he captured certain experiences. Well, it all seemed real. I find it very interesting that, you know, he embodied this Black Cuban identity and he wasn't Black Cuban. Celia Cruz is probably one of the most visible Afro-Cubans in pop culture, but for the most part, Afro-Latinos are not really 
visible in those kinds of spaces. And so in that respect, do you think he played on stereotypes? Do you think the revelation that he fabricated this part of his life, like he made the assumption of what the Cuban immigrant experience was like? Inevitably, that was a part of it. There was a a researcher I spoke with, Laura Browder from the University of Richmond, who we had a, a fascinating conversation and she said, it's really uncomfortable, but without the stereotype, there is the impersonation is not successful. And so the stereotype comes through that. And I think Ache probably knew that and played off of that. The level of detail Carrillo committed to was kind of astounding. Over the course of her reporting, Paula came across an anthology that featured essays by Latinos about learning English and their relationship with language. Carrillo wrote one of those essays. It was striking in that it was the first, well, quote-unquote, nonfiction, but as we know, fiction, right? Like, it was something where he wrote it and very much created his origin story, and it's incredibly vivid, talking about what he and his family went through when... They left Cuba and eventually were in Florida and how he learned English from watching TV shows like the Jetsons, which is, you know, he made this all up. The effort that Carrillo put into building this narrative about himself actually wasn't unusual for what he was doing. Passing. My own research with passing is that's how it goes. Lisa has done extensive research on different types of passing. She has members of her own family who have passed. Most people who pass are fairly successful. They, they don't do it lightly. It, it's something that is not always strategic, but it's much more widespread than I thought it was. Lisa and another author, Brando Skyhorse, put together a book of essays about passing. What's crazy is that she almost asked Carrillo to contribute. It was a topic that they had discussed together along with their conversations about the assumptions other people made about their racial identities. Racial passing has a long and complicated history. There's a lot of reasons why people choose to pass or feel like they need to. Sometimes it's survival. Sometimes it's for opportunity. And sometimes it's just hard to understand why. Sort of like this case. Because what I've wondered about here is why Carrillo would choose to pass as Afro-Cuban. He was a Black, gay American man with roots, with a history, with a story. But he chose to take on another. I mean, Afro-Cubans are Black, and he shared that, but by appropriating the Cuban identity, Carrillo's actions had far-reaching implications, maybe more than he realized. More on that after the break. I've also seen that people have expressed frustration or discomfort with the notion that he was possibly taking positions that could have gone to people that do have Latinx heritage. And it seems like he was creating opportunities for other people from this position. But do you think that changes the reality that he was taking a space from someone else that could have occupied it. I don't think that changes the reality. I think that's inevitable that as he was doing this, he was taking opportunities from people who 
were Latinx who were very much doing the work in this respect. I do think that he he made a point to help bring up other students who were from disenfranchised backgrounds. But that doesn't change the fact that there are so few spots, especially in academia, that this could have been an opportunity for someone else. Something that I think is interesting as well is that brought up questions for me about the tenure track process at universities, because when you're going for tenure as a professor, it's my understanding that it's illegal to ask people questions about their background and their identity as you're going through that process. And so how do you vet someone? Like you have to meet them where they are. And if they say, this is my experience and my work is rooted in that, like, of course you believe them. Like if, if this is something that they're dedicating their lives to, but you know, he, nobody knew. So it's, it's hard to say in the academic world how this would have played out. Do you think his life changed in certain ways by adopting a Latino identity or like, did it give him opportunities that he wouldn't have necessarily gotten as just a black author? I think by embodying a Latino identity, he became a voice for a certain part of the community. Colorism is very much a part of the Latino community and it's very pervasive. And he absolutely knew that and felt it from what I understand, especially when, I mean, in reading his books, it's clear like that comes up a lot with his characters. He was on panels about Latino identity in books. And, you know, his work was a lot about unpacking this identity. So it's hard to say what his career would have been like had he not embodied this identity, but it certainly would have been different. You write at the end of your article, in a situation where it's difficult to know what's fiction and what's not, Ache's generosity still feels as real to me now as it did back then, even though along the way he hurt people close to him. How do you think about his legacy? And how do you hold them in your in your mind from this point forward? I think his legacy is as someone who was brilliant and incredibly complicated and who was writing a very different story than anyone could have ever anticipated, <laughs> I think is, is probably the best way I can put that. And even though what he was teaching us was coming from a very different place than anyone realized, I do think the lessons stand. I never felt like Finding this out disqualified what he taught me because I think that these are good, important lessons. All in all, do you feel like he cheated? And if so, who did he cheat? I think ultimately he cheated himself. He was a fascinating, extraordinary, wonderful, like warm, kind person who didn't need to do all of this. Like he... He was such a, a force of just wonderfulness, for lack of a better way of putting it. And what he did was wrong. 
and he did it for reasons we will never know. But I wish that he didn't feel like he had to or that he would have let the world see just how incredible he was without having to do all of this and, you know, appropriating an identity and all of the confusion and hurt that came after that. He was talented. He was caring. He worked hard to open doors in the publishing world for Latino authors. He nurtured voices that might have otherwise been lost. But all of that came at a cost. To the Latino authors whose seats he may have taken, to students who felt betrayed, but also to himself. He was able to genuinely connect with so many people, but it seems he found it difficult to connect with the most important person, himself. Hey, folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Julia Doyle. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Tom Fuller. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta at Output Media. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Iker Egbatola. Egbatola.